0: The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com/slash premium. It only costs five dollars a month. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at one dollar. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest Therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelpcom gold today to get ten percent off your first month. That's betterhelp h.com slash gold. During my last podcast, I mentioned that I was surprised at how resilient the stock market was in the face of very disappointing news on inflation. The week before We had gotten disappointing news on the CPI, and then last week, it was the PPI. Both of these inflation measures came out hotter than expected, and in my opinion, it indicated a trough in so-called disinflation. This is what Fed Chair Powell was referring to with respect to the fact that the Fed was winning its battle against inflation, because even though we still had inflation higher than the Fed's 2% target, it was coming down. We were seeing a sequential decline in month-over-month inflation numbers, year-over-year inflation numbers. So it appeared that the Fed's strategy was working, and we were well on a path to victory, and that soon inflation would return to the Fed's 2% target. And of course, once that happened, well, then the Fed would be free to start reducing interest rates. Now, I was pointing out, that all of this was wishful thinking at best, that it was not going to be nearly as easy to get that inflation genie back in the bottle as the markets expected. And the PPI and CPI data should have thrown cold water on that narrative, but apparently it didn't because the market shrugged it off. In fact, last week you had gains in the NASDAQ. In fact, the more speculative names in the NASDAQ the ones in the Kathy Wood Ark Innovation ETF—they were the strongest on the week, completely ignoring the surprisingly strong inflation numbers. And again, I want to reiterate just how difficult it really is to get inflation to two percent if that is in fact the Fed's target. Because if you look back in time, going back to 1970, that's when inflation really got out of hand. But going back to the year 1970. There have only been 11 years since then where inflation has been 2% or lower because it would have to be 2% or lower for the Fed to achieve its target of 2%. Obviously, you're never going to get exactly 2%. I mean, maybe you could if you get lucky, but if your target is 2%, then you kind of want to be like the price is right. You want to get it close, but a little bit under Because if you're over 2%, well, you've missed the target. You're never going to hit it exactly. That's how ridiculous the concept of a 2% target is. But if you're going to take the Fed at its word that it wants inflation to be 2%, then it should be 2% or slightly under, effectively achieve that goal. And the Fed has only done it 11 times. Now, not that 2% was its official target back in the 70s or 80s. But just to highlight how difficult it is to have a 2% inflation rate in this modern fiat economy, we've only had 2% or less 11 times since 1970. And eight of those 11 years happened after the 2008 financial crisis. In other words, before the 2008 financial crisis, when we kind of had a normal economy, we only had three years out of 38 where we had 2% or lower inflation. That's 8% of the time. So if we throw out the decade after the 2008 financial crisis, which was very abnormal, which was when we had 0% interest rates and all that quantitative easing, if you go back to a normal period of time and you could argue today's time period is more normal in that respect based on where interest rates are. Why should it be any easier ...for the Fed to get 2% inflation now than it was before the 2008 financial crisis. In fact, it should be harder for the Fed to achieve that goal... ...because we have so much more debt now than we had back then. Interest rates have been so low for so long, the Fed has created so much money. Something like half the money in circulation came into circulation just in the last couple of years. So that really makes the Fed's job of bringing inflation down to 2% basically impossible. We haven't even reached a new equilibrium yet to reflect all the new money that is now in circulation because you have to have a balance between supply and demand. Supply being the amount of goods that are produced and demand meaning all the money that's available to produce those goods people now have a lot more money. Why? Because the Fed created a lot more money and put it into circulation. So there is now more money chasing a limited supply of goods. We need a new equilibrium. The demand curve has shifted as a result of an increase in the money supply. So now we need to find a higher equilibrium price to balance supply and demand. And we're not even there yet. So to think that the Fed could easily return us to a 2% inflation, a goal that was very rarely achieved prior to the 2008 financial crisis. The question is, how were they able to achieve it at all following the 2008 financial crisis? Because that's when we printed all this money. That's when we had QE1, QE2, QE3, 0% interest rates. Why didn't we see a more immediate effect on consumer prices then? Why was the lag so long? Why did we have to wait until 2021 to really see the spike in inflation that I was calling for back in 2009? And there were a number of people who were making the same call. Of course, you had guys like Paul Krugman who were saying, oh, guys like Peter Schiff are wrong. There's no inflation. And then they took comfort in the fact that as the official inflation numbers came out in 2011 or 12 or 13 or 14 or 15, and we had all these sub-2% numbers, Krugman was taking this victory lap to say that guys like Peter Schiff, and every once in a while he would mention Peter Schiff, but that I was wrong because I was calling for hyperinflation. And look, we have inflation below 2%. I wasn't wrong in my warnings We're now experiencing exactly what I was warning about. In fact, we're just at the cusp of it. It's going to get a lot worse. But yes, it took a lot longer than I expected for the consequences of the inflation that the Fed created to manifest itself at the consumer price level, because the Federal Reserve has been deliberately creating inflation as a policy decision for better than a decade. They've been telling us we didn't have enough inflation and their goal was to create more. And they've succeeded beyond their wildest expectations. And I warned for a long time that the Fed should be careful for what it wishes for, that if they end up overshooting on inflation, it's going to be much harder to bring the rate back down. Because if you remember, the Fed kept saying that too much inflation would be a good problem to have. They were trying to convince the public that the real problem was not enough inflation because the Fed didn't really know what to do to create more because it didn't have any experience creating inflation. Its main experience was fighting it, and it knew how to do that, and it had the tools. So the guys at the FOMC and gals when Yellen was Fed chairman, they were basically saying that if we could only get too much inflation, that would be a good problem because we know how to solve it. And that's what made me say on my podcast on many occasions, be careful what you wish for if you're a central banker wishing for inflation. The ECB was making the same mistake. They were saying that they wanted inflation to be too high because it was better than inflation being too low. And I pointed out just how impossible it would be to put the inflation genie back in the bottle. In fact, I pointed out that that expression came to being for a reason, if you have an expression like that, it was developed specifically because of the experiences that people had. So the reason you're not supposed to let the inflation genie out of the bottle is because of how hard it is to get it back in. But for some reason, this new generation of central bankers basically felt that, no, that expression doesn't mean anything at all, because clearly it's the easiest thing you could do is get the inflation genie back in the bottle. We're so confident we could do it, we're willing to let it out knowing that we have the tools to immediately put it back in. We're now in the process of reliving the experience that is responsible for the adoption of that adage in the first place. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information JoindeleteMe.com slash gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. But getting back for a minute to some of the reasons for this long lag in the big outburst in inflation as reflected in the CPI and the PPI and all the inflation that the Federal Reserve unleashed into the economy through its QE programs that followed the 2008 financial crisis, and then the even larger QE program during the COVID pandemic. There are a number of reasons for that lag. One was, of course, the obvious understatement of consumer prices and producer prices in those official measures. They're not accurate, and I think they're even less accurate now than they were in the past. And so that's part of the problem, but it's only a small part. A larger part, I think, had to do with the rush into the dollar following the 2008 financial crisis, which helped reduce the cost of our imports and the fact that the dollar has been relatively strong and on an upward trend ever since. So that has helped to keep a lid on domestic consumer prices as has the surge in our trade deficit. If you look at the record trade deficits that have been set following the 2008 financial crisis, America has been able to satisfy a lot of the extra demand that was created by money printing by importing goods that we didn't produce. And so we had the goods to buy with all the money, and without those goods, there would have been much more upward pressure on prices because you would have had more money chasing a limited supply of goods, but that supply of goods became greater as a result of the willingness of our trading partners to supply the goods that we did not produce to go along with the money that we printed. So that also helped to minimize the impact that inflation had on consumer prices. Another factor was that the money entered the economy through the financial sector, and so the initial impact was seen more in asset prices rather than goods prices. We saw stock prices going up, bond prices going up, real estate prices going up, cryptocurrency prices going up. All sorts of asset prices went up, but these asset prices went up because of inflation. Stocks didn't go up because the companies themselves were more valuable. It was the PEs that went up. Stock prices rose as a result of inflation. When inflation causes asset prices to go up, nobody has a problem with that because everybody likes that because people who own assets feel richer as a result of inflation pushing up asset prices so they don't complain. And in fact, rising asset prices in a low interest rate environment are particularly problematic because then people who own assets can borrow money cheap against those assets without selling them and then buy stuff and turn higher asset-based wealth into real consumption. And that was helping to drive the trade deficits higher. And ultimately is one of the reasons that we're now experiencing the increase in consumer prices. Also, when people are able to borrow cheap against depreciated assets, they don't pay any taxes on the money they borrow, which gives them even more money to spend. Because under normal circumstances, When Americans are earning money to spend, taxes are diminishing their paychecks. They're earning less after-tax income, and so they have less money to spend. But if they borrow money instead of earn it, none of the money they borrow is taxable. So they can spend without paying taxes, and that also has the added effect of depriving the government of tax revenue, because if somebody sold an asset in order to free up cash to spend, the government would collect the capital gains tax. But if low interest rates give asset holders the option of not selling, just borrowing cheap, then they can spend without paying taxes. And that's one of the reasons that we have larger budget deficits, which is also driving inflation. Because if we have larger budget deficits, how does the government bridge that gap? Well, through the Fed. The Fed monetizes that debt, buys the government bonds, Prints money and there's more inflation. As I was saying from the beginning, even though inflation may start out in asset prices, it always ends up in consumer prices because the reason that people own assets is so they can buy consumer goods. That is the reason for wealth. It is so you can use that wealth to attain more consumer goods to increase your standard of living to have a better life. People don't want assets. They want the things they could buy with the income that those assets generate or with the sales proceeds that they raise by selling those assets and then turning them into cash, which they can then use to buy the things that they really want. So people don't want their stocks. They don't want to hang up a stock certificate on the wall and admire it as if anybody has stock certificates anymore. What they want Are the goods and services they can buy with the dividends or the capital gains? And I always said that the inflation would flow from assets to real consumer goods, and that's what's happening. But one aspect that I overlooked, which I think in hindsight was very significant in keeping the consumer prices low, was the perverse effect of lower interest rates. See, I thought that the Fed's 0% interest rate policy And the QE that was necessary to insure it would cause prices to rise. Because after all, the Fed had to print a lot of money, create a lot of inflation in order to artificially suppress interest rates. But the artificial suppression of interest rates in and of itself lowered inflation. How was that? Well, interest is a price. When businesses have a reduction in their cost of interest, they can pass on those lower costs to their customers in the form of lower prices. That was also true with respect to housing costs because when people were buying homes, even if the price of the home was going up, and remember home prices are not part of the CPI, but there is a shelter component that is a large part of the CPI and owner's equivalent rent. And I think one of the reasons that that number was so low was because mortgage rates were so low And that was making it so much cheaper for Americans to buy homes. And so the owner's equivalent rents were also impacted by those low mortgage rates. And so paradoxically, by creating inflation and artificially suppressing interest rates, it actually helped keep the CPI low. Now, of course, that the Fed has been forced to raise interest rates, supposedly to fight the inflation that it created, that is having an adverse effect on the CPI because lowering rates to zero reduced the CPI. Raising interest rates now is going to put upward pressure on the CPI. So the Federal Reserve, by fighting inflation, is actually making the inflation, it's trying to fight worse, at least in the short run, because rising interest rates are being factored in to the cost of production. Just like raw material costs, just like labor costs, we are seeing the impact that rising interest rates have on prices. Also, rising interest rates are giving consumers who hold debt instruments more disposable income because when interest rates were really low, the return on your savings or your bonds was really low as far as the money that you can spend. But now that interest rates are higher, the government is paying its creditors more money In fact, the money supply ultimately is going to have to expand. The Fed's going to have to go back to QE in order to enable the government to make these higher interest expenses. Well, interest expense from the government is interest income from the recipients, and that extra income can be spent. And so actually what we're going to see is rising interest rates causing more inflation in that it's going to put more money into the economy that will be spent bidding up prices. So when I was issuing my inflation warnings back in the early days of 0% interest rates and quantitative easing, I really underestimated the impact that these low interest rates would actually have on temporarily keeping the inflation rate low. And the fact that the CPI measured inflation rate was so low for so long that lulled everybody into a false sense of complacency that there was nothing to worry about. That because the CPI was below 2% for so many years, even though we had printed all this money, even though interest rates were so low, that meant the Fed could print as much money as it wanted, it can keep interest rates as low as it wanted, and we'd never have an inflation problem. Very few people considered that it was the low interest rates themselves that were responsible for the low CPI, but that those low interest rates were ultimately sowing the seeds of their own destruction because the huge inflation problem that would ultimately result was going to be impossible to solve, especially when solving it, trying to normalize interest rates in and of itself would exacerbate the very problem that the Fed was trying to solve. In fact, given that interest rates are now rising, it's basically impossible for the Fed to get inflation back down to 2%. The markets have yet to come to terms with that reality. And another thing that is complicating the Fed's job are the Social Security colas. In January, annual Social Security benefits increased by 8.7% as a result of inflation. That means all the people who are getting Social Security who pretty much spend all their money. Nobody saves their Social Security money. What are you saving for? You're not saving for your old age. When you are collecting Social Security, you're basically spending 100% of the money. Yeah, sure, you still have Social Security going to wealthy people like Warren Buffett who don't really notice it, but the vast majority of people on Social Security are living on Social Security. And if it's not their only source of retirement income, it's a big chunk, but they're spending all that income, and so that extra spending is going to help to drive prices higher. So the fact that we keep on giving Americans more money to pay higher prices in and of itself causes prices to go even higher. It's like a dog trying to catch its own tail. It can't do it. Speaking of Social Security, I was watching an interview during the week on CNBC with a Democratic congressman, and the topic was the debt ceiling. And this congressman was adamant that what we have to do is immediately raise the ceiling and pay our bills. And I hate the way they always link those two terms together, raise the debt ceiling to pay our bills, as if they're trying to do the right thing by paying their bills. And I keep pointing out that we're raising the debt ceiling so we can avoid paying our bills. What they should be saying is we have to raise the debt ceiling because we can't afford to pay our bills. And because we can't afford to pay our bills, we have to go deeper into debt. And that's why we need to raise the debt ceiling so we can keep on avoiding having to pay bills that we can't afford and we can go deeper into debt. They never say that, and nobody ever calls them out. I've never heard a reporter point out the inconsistency between saying we have to go deeper into debt so we can pay our bills. But I've talked about that before, and that's not the reason I'm bringing this up now. It's because of the discussion of Social Security. Because during this conversation, the guy who was interviewing him, and I forget who it was, said, what are we going to do about the deficit? Because the Democrats want a clean debt ceiling raise. They don't want raising the debt ceiling to be linked with any kind of spending cuts or anything that might rein in future deficits. According to this Democratic congressman, raising the debt ceiling is too important. That paying our bills is so important that we just need a clean debt ceiling raise. We can't risk the full faith and credit of the United States. We can't scare anybody into thinking that we're gonna default or not make our commitments, not pay our bills. So paying our bills is really important. We gotta raise the debt ceiling. Again, if paying our bills was so important, we wouldn't have any debt because we would have paid our bills. The reason we have so much debt is because nobody pays the bills. We just put it all on a credit card. But the guy that was interviewing this congressman said, okay, well, Let's assume we raise the debt ceiling. How are you going to address the debt? What are you going to do? And the only thing that this Democratic congressman would point out were the things that they wouldn't cut. We're not going to cut Social Security. We're not going to cut Medicare. There were a bunch of things that he said he would not cut, but he didn't mention anything that he would cut. In fact, it was frustrating because if I was interviewing this guy, I would have said, okay. fine. You've told us what's off the table. Can you now tell us what's on the table? Because once you take all the big stuff off the table, there's really nothing left on the table. Basically, they took all the food off the table and all that's left is a stick of butter. That's it. They had this huge banquet on the table and they've taken it all away. And all that's left is this one stick of butter. I'm not even sure it's a whole stick. Maybe all that's left compared to the budget is one of those little butter squares that you get sometimes in fast food restaurants, that's all that's on the table. But the reporter did ask him, what is your plan? What is your vision? How do you see deficit reduction coming about? And his only answer was, I'll let you know once we figure it out. Because first we have to have a meeting, we have to study the problem, We have to come up with some ideas. And then after we have this committee and after we think about it and form something on a bipartisan way, then I'll come out and tell you how we're going to reduce the deficit. But I'm not going to tell you now, which is all a bunch of BS. Nobody wants to tell anybody what they want to cut because the minute a politician says what he wants to cut, now you have all of the factions that benefit From whatever spending program is going to be cut, now they're coming to Congress to lobby to keep it. Because for every government program, there is a set of beneficiaries who don't want to lose that money, and they will fight to keep it. And nobody wants to alienate a contributor. Nobody wants to risk alienating somebody who is benefiting from that program, because they will vote against the politician who's threatening to take it away. So nobody wants to identify what they're willing to cut. And no one party is willing to go on the record as supporting a cut in anything unless they know they've got the other party on board so that it's bipartisan and so that nobody could use it against them. Because after all, if both the Republicans and the Democrats agree to cut something, well, then it's no longer a campaign issue. But of course, it's always a campaign issue because any politician who supports it, whether they're a Democrat or Republican, still has to deal with that in the polls and they still may be primaried by somebody who can use it against them. So the bottom line is nobody is willing to come out and say what they want to cut. And so nothing is ever going to get cut. And so the deficits are going to keep on growing. And yes, we're going to keep on raising the debt ceiling. This is all a bunch of political drama. At the end of the day, they don't have the guts to do the right thing. So they will do the wrong thing again and raise the debt ceiling and do absolutely nothing to slow the trajectory of the increase in debt, we are headed for a fiscal and monetary cliff. There is no way to avoid it. All you can do is brace for impact. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm, driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash gold. That's harrys.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. But getting back to the point that I started making at the beginning of this podcast, on my last podcast, I spoke about how the markets had been able to hold up even in the face of hotter than expected inflation data. Well, that was not the case this week. The markets finally rolled over in a way that I had been expecting them to roll over. This was the worst week of the year for the stock market. In fact, the Dow Jones fell about 1,000 points on the week. That's about a 3% decline. Friday was the weakest day of the week. The Dow Jones dropped about 336 points off the lows but still down by just over 1% on the day. The S&P 500 was also down just over 1%. The Nasdaq, though, taking the hardest hit, down 1.7%. In fact, the Dow Jones ended the week negative for the year, and it is the only major stock market index that is in the red in 2023. It's now down about 1% It's about 4.4% off its January high. Also, what's significant is all of the other indexes that are still positive on the year made new highs in February, but the Dow did not. Its high is still in January, and now it is negative on the year. But I think before too long, all of the other major stock market indexes are going to join the Dow in the red. Taking a look at the other indexes, the S&P's weekly drop was 2.7%. That index is now 5.4% from its high earlier in February, yet it's still up 3.4% in 2023. Russell 2000 down 2.9% on the week. It's now down 5.8% from its February high, but still up. 7.3% 7.3 percent in 2023. The Nasdaq dropped 3 percent on the week. It's down 7 percent from its high this month, but it's still up 9.6 percent in 2023. But again, it was the most beaten down stocks in 2022 that enjoyed the biggest dead cat bounce in 2023. The Ark Innovation ETF falling 8.2 percent on the week. It's now down 15 and a half percent. From its February high, but it's still up 23% in 2023. That's still a big gain, but it won't last long. Similarly, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust has been following Bitcoin higher, but it dropped 6% on the week. It's now down 13.8% from its February high, but it's still up a staggering 38% in 2023. Despite that 13.8%, Drop, it's still up close to 40% on the year. But again, those gains will not last. I expect Bitcoin to finish the year in the red. In fact, it may even finish this quarter in the red. That's how quickly that gain can evaporate. In fact, as I'm recording this podcast on Saturday afternoon, Bitcoin is trading just under 23,000 after having traded above 25,000 earlier in the week. I think the high that I saw. Was 25,250 around there. And so we're now 9% lower. That should extend to a 10% decline early next week, which would put Bitcoin in correction territory. If you think we're now in a new bull market, I don't. I think we're still in a bear market. And this correction will simply resume the bear market when we're down 20% and ultimately extend the bear market when we take out the 2022 low. The catalyst for the big decline on Friday, which extended the losses of the week, was the pre-market release of the personal income and spending data for January. Contained in that data was hotter than expected inflation numbers relative to the PCE. But before I get to that, let me talk about the personal income and spending numbers themselves, which were stronger than expected on the spending side, but weaker than expected on the income side. The expectation was for personal income to gain 1% after gaining 0.2% during December. The December 0.2% rise was notched up to 0.3, but the 1% gain that they were looking for in January came out at a disappointing 0.6. On the other side, the spending numbers surprised to the upside. First of all, the drop of 0.2 that was originally reported for December was revised slightly higher to a decline of 0.1. But instead of increasing by 1.2, spending surged by 1.8. Now, first of all, you would imagine that if spending surged by 1.8%, but incomes only rose by 0.6%, that the savings rate would have dropped. Instead, it rose for the second consecutive month. The savings rate is now up to 4.7%, but that makes no sense because if consumers spent 1.8% more, but their incomes only gained 0.6%, where'd they get the money? If they didn't borrow it, if they didn't dip into savings, it doesn't make any sense, which is why you always have to take these government numbers with a grain of salt I think there may have been some seasonal adjustments or the government had gone back over previous months and tweaked these numbers. So maybe we'll get some revisions in future numbers. But again, I'm always suspicious of the way the government reports these numbers. I read an article on Zero Hedge where they were looking for an explanation for the 1.8% surge in January personal spending, and they attributed it to a record decline in tax revenue which was an interesting point. I didn't even realize that tax revenue had plunged so much. I know a lot of states have been cutting taxes in order to provide a stimulus to offset the rising cost of food and energy. And so those tax cuts put more money in the people's pockets, but less money in the government coffers, which means these governments are gonna have to borrow more money to finance these tax cuts. All of this, of course, being inflationary, but still not sure why the reduction In taxes didn't also increase personal income, which I believe is an after tax number. Another important point, which gets into a point I made earlier about how rising interest rates are going to make it harder for the government to fight inflation, is that a lot of people still have adjustable rate mortgages and people are buying new homes, and everybody who's doing that is paying a higher interest rate. And for most homeowners who are itemizing deductions, they can deduct from their income taxes 100% of their mortgage interest payments. So as mortgage rates are higher, and I think right now they're about 6.3%, whereas a year ago, they were barely over 3%. But that means people who have mortgage debt are paying more in interest on their home loan, and therefore they get a bigger tax deduction on their income tax. And so that exacerbates the deficits because now the US government will collect less in income taxes because taxpayers are getting a bigger deduction for paying higher mortgage interest. And where is the government going to get the money to finance those larger deficits? At the end of the day, it's through inflation. It's through borrowing money and debt monetization. But getting back to the personal income and spending numbers themselves, the 0.6% gain in income and the 1.8% gain in spending is not adjusted for inflation. Those are nominal numbers. Now, within the personal income and spending numbers, you do get the PCE, which is a price index. And the expectation was for an increase of 0.4 during the month. And the increase came out 50% higher than that at up 0.6. And the 0.1% increase that was originally reported for December was upperly revised to 0.2. Now, first of all. Just looking at that 0.6 number, that completely wipes out the gains in income. If incomes were up 0.6, but prices were up 0.6, real income was unchanged. Now, if you take 0.6 out of the 1.8% increase in spending, that means that only 0.6% of that number was because of higher prices and 1.2% was because of actual additional spending. Now, I don't really believe that. Because I don't believe the PCE. The PCE is the most inaccurate of all the measures that the government uses to report on inflation. And in fact, it happens to be the Federal Reserve's favorite way to measure inflation. Now, it's not a coincidence that the most inaccurate way to measure inflation is the Fed's favorite. The PCE is the index that understates the impact inflation has the most on consumer prices. So if you're looking for a low number, you're gonna get it in the PCE. So if the Fed is gonna say that we have a 2% inflation target, but it's not a 2% CPI that we're targeting, it's a 2% PCE, then it's an easier bar to clear because that index captures even less of the price increases than would be captured by the CPI, even though the CPI deliberately misses a lot of the growth. One of the reasons that the PCE is so inaccurate is because of substitution. For example, if the price of steak goes up and consumers buy less steak and they substitute chicken, then they kick steak out of the basket and they substitute in chicken. And therefore, they can show that spending is not really going up because you're just buying chicken instead of steak. And in fact, I was listening to somebody on television talking about the PCE, pointing that out and saying that is why that index is a better measure of inflation because it measures money that families actually spend, because it takes into account the way families change their behavior in the face of rising prices, and therefore that is a more accurate way to measure inflation, and that is wrong. It is not a more accurate way to measure inflation. It is a inaccurate way because when you're measuring price increases in that way, you are assigning zero value to quality. If the price of steak goes up so much that somebody can no longer afford to eat steak, and so they substitute a less desirable meat, they eat chicken, they'd prefer to eat steak, they can't afford it anymore, so they're settling for chicken and maybe now They're spending as much money on chicken as they used to spend on steak, but they're not getting the quality that they wanted. They're not consuming the protein that they wanted. They're settling for something else. To say that there's no inflation is a lie. Because first of all, if they wanted chicken and they were buying chicken before, chicken is now more expensive. There are plenty of people that don't eat red meat that just eat chicken and they can't substitute chicken steak for chicken because they weren't even eating steak in the first place. So they're eating chicken and they're paying more for it. But to say that it doesn't matter if you have to substitute a lower price, your standard of living is going down, claiming that it doesn't matter if you substitute chicken for steak and saying there's no inflation because people are still eating and they're paying the same amount of money for their food. What happens if chicken gets so expensive and families can't afford that and they have to settle for dog food? And so families that used to eat chicken now spend the same amount of money eating dog food. And are you really going to argue that there's no inflation? That family isn't worse off because they're eating dog food? After all, they're still chowing down. They're still eating. So if you're going to say it doesn't matter what you eat, it matters what you pay to eat whatever you can afford. And so there's no inflation. This is the kind of nonsense that economists expect us to swallow when it comes to substitution. All substitution does is allow the government to lie about inflation, allows the Federal Reserve to pretend that the inflation rate is lower than it really is because it hides the suffering of the American public who are being forced to trade down into lower quality goods because inflation is so high that they can no longer afford the higher quality goods that they used to buy. But in addition to the personal spending number, being much stronger than expected, which obviously complicates the Fed's job to fight inflation because if people are spending more, they're going to be driving prices higher, was the fact that the PCE itself was much hotter than what the markets were looking for. Again, I already pointed out that the 0.6% rise was 50% greater than what had been expected, but it also sequentially was triple the gain from December, if you look at the year-over-year PCE, it was supposed to rise by 4.9. Instead, it rose by 5.4. And the December number that was originally reported as up five was revised to being up 5.3. Again, not only are we hotter than expected, but we're sequentially higher than expected because investors expected that the 5% rise in the year-over-year PCE in December would drop to 4.9 in January. Instead, they revised December up to 5.3, and then January was even higher than that at 5.4. And this was the point that I was trying to make in my last couple of podcasts, that we've seen the lows in the improvement in inflation, that the disinflation trend is now over and the numbers are swinging back higher And we're getting worse than expected inflation numbers and sequentially greater increase in prices. The same thing with the core PCE, which again is the Fed's favorite way to measure PCE because it throws out food and energy. Remember, the Fed always favors the measure of inflation that shows the lowest number because it makes their job easier. But if you look at that number, the expectation for the month increase in the core PCE was 0.4. And again, the real increase was 0.6, 50% above expectations and adding insult to injury, they revised upward to 0.3% rise originally reported in December. That's now 0.4. And of course, that exacerbated the year-over-year gain in the core PCE. It was supposed to rise by 4.3 which would have been an improvement of the 4.4 from December. Instead, they revised December up to 4.6 and January's number topped that coming in at 4.7. So again, not only are the inflation numbers hotter than expected, but they're now trending up. And that shows that the progress that the Fed claims to have made in fighting inflation is already lost. In fact, if the Fed's goal is 2% inflation, they are nowhere near their goal. In fact, the PCE is now going up. What was once 5% year-over-year increase in December is now a 5.4%. So the Fed is moving further away from its 2% inflation goal, not closer to it. And this is what is weighing down the markets. Because remember, I pointed this out, the entire rally in January and then into February was built on the foundation of the false belief that the inflation fight was won, that it was now just a matter of time before inflation returned to 2% and the Fed could start cutting rates. The markets are still expecting the Fed to pivot because they expect inflation to go back down to 2%. And I've already pointed out how that's not only a difficult job, it's an impossible job. It can't be done. The only way it could be done would be if the Federal Reserve allowed not only significant increases in interest rates, far more than what it's allowed thus far, but there would have to be a substantial tightening of credit conditions so consumers couldn't simply borrow more money to pay the higher prices. And then we're going to have to see dramatic cuts in government spending to the things that are now off the table, like Social Security and Medicare. None of that is going to happen. And so inflation returning to 2% is nothing but a fantasy. And when that reality rears its head, we're gonna see much bigger declines in the market than what we saw so far this week. Now, as you would expect, the bond market reacted negatively to these hotter than expected inflation numbers. The yield on the five-year rose from 4% to 4.2% on the week, majority of those gains on Friday. 10-year yields also moved up from 3.83 to 3.95. That is the highest yield since November of 2022. And it seems that the downtrend has now reversed and yields are once again headed higher. Of course, they're still below 4%, which makes no sense. You're talking about 4% on a 10-year U.S. government bond. Not only is the Fed not going to get inflation down to 2%, it's not going to get it down to 4%. I don't think we're going to have inflation as low as 4% in any year over the next 10. So loaning money to the U.S. government at 4% for 10 years is a losing proposition. And so rates are headed a lot higher. Last year was one of the worst years ever for the U.S. bond market. And this year... Can be even worse. Not only were bond prices falling, but the expectations for Fed rate hikes were rising. In fact, the markets are now pricing in a near certainty that the Fed is going to hike rates by 25 basis points in each of its next three meetings. That's March, May, and June. And that will leave the Fed funds rate at five and a quarter. We're currently at four and a half, but there's now a 25% chance that the Fed is going to hike rates by 50 basis points in March rather than 25, meaning we get to that five and a quarter by May. Of course, the terminal rate is going to be much higher than that because five and a quarter is not nearly high enough to fight inflation. In fact, what it's doing right now is complicating the Fed's job by raising everybody's interest costs. And those higher interest costs, as I said, are feeding their way through into consumer prices. Getting back to the bond yields, the inverted yield curve is now even more inverted. The yield on a 3-month US Treasury is now 4.78%, a 6-month is 5.09. That is the highest point of the curve. On a 12-year, you're getting 4.99 and a 2-year is 4.8 run. Remember, then the 5-year drops down to 4.22. The 10-year drops down to 394, and even a 30-year is only 393. That's a huge downward slope. And this indicates that the soft landing ain't going to happen either. Not only is inflation going to be stronger than expected, as I've been warning, but the economy is going to be much weaker. It's a crash landing, not a soft landing. That's what this inverted yield curve is telling you. But what it's not telling you is that inflation is not going to come down, which is what investors expect. Investors are accurately pricing in recession, but what they're missing is the inflationary aspect of this recession. What bond investors haven't figured out is that this recession will differ from recent prior recessions in that it will be a catalyst for higher, not lower inflation, and that is a disaster for bonds. And proving that investors still don't get the implications of what's going on. The dollar rose on hotter-than-expected inflation numbers. In fact, the dollar index was up almost 1.4% on the week. It closed back above the 105 handle at 105.26. Gold, of course, went the other way. It dropped. It was down about 1.7% on the week, I think about $30. It did close above 1,800, though, at 1,811. But gold is now negative on the year by about three quarters of 1%, although we're still holding well above the December lows. I think the gold chart looks a lot better than the bond chart. I think the bond chart is breaking down, but I think gold is still holding firm because ultimately what investors have to come to terms with is hotter than expected inflation. Doesn't just mean that the Fed is gonna have to fight harder to win its battle against inflation it means that the Fed is now losing its battle against inflation, and no matter how hard it fights, it still can't win. Because at some point, fighting harder to beat inflation doesn't succeed in bringing down inflation, but it does succeed in bringing down the bubble economy, and bringing down the stock market, the real estate market, the bond market, potentially creating a financial crisis, which ultimately causes the Fed to surrender in the battle against inflation. And so inflation is going to win. And when inflation wins, everybody loses, but gold wins, the dollar loses because high inflation is bad for the dollar and good for gold. It's only good if you believe that the Fed is going to bring down the inflation no matter how high it is. But at some point, investors have to throw in the towel on that hope. There has to be a limit to how long inflation can remain high before investors give up on the fantasy that it's going to come back down. And at some point, inflation is high for so long that gold has to rise a lot just to catch up to where it should be priced based on all the inflation that was created in the past that everybody expected the central banks to reverse. Gold has to catch up to the money supply. Gold has to catch up to the increases in other goods and services, and it will, but not only will it catch up, but it will take the lead. Because when investors wake up to reality and high inflation becomes bad news for the dollar and good news for gold, which it should, that's when the next leg of this gold bull market that really began in around 2001 kicks into high gear. A couple of more data points that I want to talk about are the GDP numbers for the fourth quarter of 2022. The government downwardly revised what they originally reported as a 2.9% gain in Q4 GDP to a gain of 2.7, which is also a sequential decline from the 3.2% growth in Q3, although both those quarters represent a contrast to the decline that we had in both Q1 and Q2 of 2022, which everybody dismissed as not being a recession. And they were able to claim some vindication because we climbed out of that hole in Q3 or Q4. But I think we're gonna be back into that hole because we never actually got out of it, that this is all a fluke of inflation, not real economic growth. But growth is clearly decelerating and I think it's got a lot more to fall in fact, if you look beneath the surface, what's been powering the GDP growth, consumer spending, that was revised sharply lower. The original estimate was a 2.1% increase in personal consumption, and that was revised all the way down to 1.4%. And if the consumer is the engine and it's running out of steam, then so is the bubble economy that it's been pulling. And of course, as I've been pointing out, the engine of economic growth is never consumption. Consumption is the caboose. The engine is production. And that's the one thing that we don't have. Our industrial capacity has been falling as our propensity to spend has been rising courtesy of the Fed creating inflation and because we've had the cooperation of so many other countries. But that cooperation is in danger of being lost. As a matter of fact, nobody is really talking about the news story that came out Iraq announced that it's going to be trading oil and other goods with China in yuan and not U.S. dollars. So that was a trillion dollars well spent because, remember, we spent all this money liberating and rebuilding Iraq, and now they're paying us back by de-dollarizing. But this is a trend that is going to continue it is actually flying beneath the investment radar right now because most people don't understand the significance of what's happening. And by the time they figure it out, it's going to be too late. And finally, rising mortgage rates, stronger inflation, and a weaker economy are taking their toll on existing home sales, which fell again in January for the 12th consecutive month, down to $4 million annualized. That is below the $4.1 million that had been expected. In fact, this is the lowest level in 12 years for existing home sales. And if you look at the year-over-year decline, 36.9%, that is the largest year-over-year decline in existing home sales on record. Now, the news for new homes, not as bad. Actually, that was a beat. They were expecting 617,000 annualized new home sales in January. And instead, we ended up with 670,000. And the prior month's number, December of 616, was upwardly revised to 625. But new home sales represent less than 20% of the market, better than 80% are existing home sales. So that is the market, and the market is crashing. And that has major implications for the economy, for employment, for spending. This is just more evidence that an economic soft landing is as much a fantasy as the Fed's ability to hit its 2% inflation target.